Well, welcome back to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and as usual, it's a delight to have your company. And as always, I hope you realize I have got yourself a very, very interesting guest today. Lieutenant Joseph Laramie, retired, program manager at the moment with the National Criminal Justice Training Center of Fox Valley Technical College, but a man with an enormously impressive past involved in all sorts of different matters of criminal justice, uh, crimes against children, uh, investigation, training, child abuse investigations, founding commander of the Missouri Internet, Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, worked with the Missouri Attorney General's office and so on and so on and so on. Joe, very much welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. No, you're welcome. I mean, I'm so pleased you could find the time, even as I know where you sit at the moment is uh, expecting some wild weather. And so you've probably got one eye on the clouds. Well, uh, luckily, it's OK right now. OK, well, let's hope it stays that way. Um, about 30 odd years ago, you started and you began to get, become aware of some of the real kind of injustices and problems in society to do with abuse of the vulnerable and so forth. Can you remember back to these days and when you started and what sort of things struck you in terms of what was available, what you were faced with, what the organization, if you like, what the choreography of, of law enforcement and, and it was like at the time? Well, you know, I think that, what I recall the most about my younger days um, in law enforcement is um, as I was first assigned to work um, as a juvenile officer and I was a police juvenile officer. So um, that responsibility, that title that went along with that really was just to, to investigate um, crimes that were perpetrated against children and crimes that were, and delinquency issues involving children. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I learned from the very start was how much I didn't know. Okay. And, and it was so important to, to, for me, and I think that this actually um, carried through my, has carried through my entire career and it helped me so much. But what I learned was, I don't know so much I need to surround myself with people who do know. And so I learned how to network. Okay. I think that's truly the, the, the best thing that I ever have done in my career was learn how to network and not only network with law enforcement, but network with other people in other disciplines. Ah, right. Because effectively, I bet it's the same as it's been over here in Europe. I think I, 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 it was silo mentality for a long time in attending your own per, your own profession, your own discipline tended not to be so inclusive. Was that, is that a fair assessment? Very fair assessment. You, um, the, when I first started in law enforcement, they, the child advocacy center um, known, uh, became known and that law enforcement really didn't want to have anything to do with that. That was, mm. That was social work kind mm. of stuff. And what they failed to learn um, initially was the, the importance of a multidisciplinary process in, in an investigation of a child because 
what law enforcement was doing, what the child protective services were doing, what the juvenile court was doing, what the um, forensic interviewers at the Child Advocacy Center were doing, all of those benefited the process instead of hindered the process. But law enforcement was really, I truly remember those days where they were like, I don't want any social worker telling me what to do. Mm. It's not, I tell you, you, you've just described it as it was in the UK as well, to be honest with you. Back then, 30 years ago, um, the child protection division, if you like, of my local police force consisted of one woman police sergeant. Um, that was the, the kind of weight they, they gave to it. But okay, but then it moved on a bit. Um, I, I mean, I, I rather suspect from what you say, and I would be surprised if you said otherwise, that although it's much better now in terms of working together, there's still some territorial issues that arise that make it a little bit more difficult from time to time. Oh, absolutely. They are certainly um, cross-training issues that we're seeing because in my work now, um, I'm involved with training and, and we've actually designed a training class, a particular class that's a two-day class that focuses on teaching law enforcement what child protective services do and um, getting them to understand and, and teaching child protective services what law enforcement do, putting them in the same room so that they can learn from each other and understand what each of their roles are and the benefits that come from collaboration. Yeah, yeah, very good. That's very good advice. I, I mean, listen, in America, my understanding was the same as in the UK that maybe take, okay, 100 years ago, maybe, but which of course, neither of us were around, but I mean, it's still residual in that there's a lot of feeling that family is sacrosanct sometimes and, and the kind of intrusion of statutory services into family life is, is still a difficult thing to grasp totally in, when you're investigating child abuse. Um, does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, we call that generational abuse, okay. where okay. where it is um, uh, just part of the culture of a particular community. Mm. Um, there was a, a number of years ago, there was a, um, a prosecutor for uh, a part of Missouri, and I was the Missouri Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force Commander at this time, and and. Um, we wanted to change the the law in in our state that dealt with child sexual abuse material and and um, statutorily it's called child pornography. Mm -hmm. But um, I said that to this prosecutor that I needed their help to change the law to make it a felony instead of a misdemeanor to possess this type of material. Yeah. And his response to me was oh, we'd be putting everybody in jail if we did that. <laughs> right. Okay, understood. A lot of resistance still and, and, and a lack of understanding, really. Absolutely. Mm. Well, okay. I mean, these days, law enforcement has to do far more than just the local response. And you've been heavily involved with stuff that's been international. I mean, you know, worldwide in terms of the organized crime being involved. 
At what point, can you remember within your career where it be, you became more and more aware of, of if you like, generic international stuff like like um, human trafficking or or internet abuse and you know, a sexual sort of sexual sexualized abuse of children, or um, uh, I remember exactly children. I mean, in, in I can even tell you sex, the day sex tourism and stuff like that. Really, please do. I can I can tell you. Well, I can tell you the day about the internet crimes part. Mm. Um, it was September tenth. 2000, and I was in a training room at the National Center for Missing Exploited Children in in uh, the Washington D.C. area, and um, and I was learning for the very first time about the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force Program. Okay. And I was totally surprised by the globalness of it, the um, the far-reachingness of it. And I was there, what I thought to do, where the reason I was in that room was I thought I was just going to learn about some internet safety. Remember, you know, we're talking about the pretty early days of the internet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought that's the reason I was there. And as it turned out, um, somebody else had another plan for me that day. And, and, um, and it, it turned out that I went back and I created the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force for my, for my, started out as my community, my area, my city, um, and, and extended um, a year later to the entire state of Missouri. Wow. Isn't that amazing that, you know, if, if, maybe if you'd turned left instead of right that day or, or, or if you'd had a headache or something. You know, isn't that how how fickle sometimes things are? But obviously, it was a great success, and thank God you did it. But you know, it's just amazing how these things happen. Serendipity. On that very month, I think, and maybe I'm wrong, but certainly around and about that time, I, I was awakened to the issue too because I, I I was part of the British delegation that went to Stockholm to attend the first World Congress on the commercial sexual exploitation of children which has taken off. I don't know if you've ever gone to any of them or been involved with any of them subsequently, but I, I do remember the first. And that was my kind of um, road to Damascus. Wow. That, um, for me, uh, the um, CSEC issue, the, the, the human trafficking, the child sex trafficking issue, mm. um, that uh, I didn't catch that until... Um, probably around 2010, honestly. Okay. okay. I didn't understand. I didn't understand it. And the trainings that I had been to were poorly handled to make it where when I was sitting in the room that I would understand that it actually affected me. Well, and hmm. that um, that I can say that in 2010, when um, when I started working at the Missouri Attorney General's office, um, part of my responsibility was to lead the the office's work on human trafficking. Um, that took me to a different place, and made it so that when I went to trainings, and that I would voice to the trainers that you need to make sure that those in this class understand 
the effect that this this crime should have has on their on their work mm-hmm. and that they because they weren't training the idea of what you should be doing they were training the idea of this is what we do yeah and it was arrogant in that that they didn't want anybody else stepping into their territory and and so i was in this one training honestly where um, I knew most of the police officers in the room and the training was supposed to go till five o'clock in the afternoon. And well, it did go to five o'clock in the afternoon. And by two thirty, more than half the class was gone. Really? Because, and I told them the trainers afterwards, I said, you never made this about them. You made this about you. You never put them in the position of understanding what their role would be. You just told them what your role was. So often the case that people protect themselves and effectively just want to be seen as the experts without any intrusion from colleagues. I I get it. But I will say one thing to you because it's not, you know, it's not unique to America, that kind of behavior. In the UK, America, I must say, and this was way ahead of us. Uh, in the 1997-98, uh, a piece of legislation, a Sex Offences Act, came into play. I was involved quite a lot in actually creating. It created a register of offenders, but it also created um, extraterritorial legislation so that the government could pr- um, could actually prosecute p- British men who had... Um, offended against children abroad um, and not been prosecuted for it in that country. Um, And we all thought, great, because there was huge amounts of sex tourism going on in, say, the Pacific Rim and places like that that you'll be well aware of. America had similar or has similar legislation, and so does many other Western industrialized countries. You've pressed ahead with it hugely. A few years ago, I got figures from our home office we had actually prosecuted single figures, single figures of men under that legislation, whereas other countries were both steaming ahead and using it appropriately. So we fell down in all sorts of things as well, in my view. Anyway, enough, enough of me moaning about that, but I just wanted to illustrate the fact that you know there are places where you know it's gone. I wish we had taken the road that you took. Now, you also have got involved, I mean, on the future, you've talked talk to me about some of the things that you're really interested into and you did planning and preparation seem to figure quite highly in your kind of hopes for the future. How does that, how does that kind of manifest itself, Joe? Well, I, I think we need to just analyze what happens if you're not prepared one of three things is going to happen. You're going to underreact, you're going to overreact, or you're going to delay react. Mm. And I don't think any of those are good options. So we need to do more planning. We need to do more of a preparation of what ifs so that we know what to do when the bad thing happens. Um, I can honestly, I can go back to a day when I was responding to a call and, and I, um, it was a, it was a horrific, um, crime scene and 
on my way there, I'm thinking through what I should be doing. And I can say that what I did when I got there was what I thought through. And if I hadn't prepared myself, I'm not sure how bad it would have gotten mm. or how much worse it would have gotten yeah. if I hadn't just thought for for that minute and a half, two minute, you know, um, lights and siren drive that I was on. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So the idea of actually putting some thought into, even if it was for a couple of minutes, yes. you know, it made the difference. Yes. Mm. Training was something that you, it, it, it threads itself all the way through your CV. Um, obviously, you are a great advocate of good training. Um, and possibly you've also mentioned resources. Um, I guess they've been patchy over the years. Sometimes you really wish you had more than you had, and sometimes you've just had enough or whatever. I mean, do you think there ever will be enough resources? Because it's almost... Offenses against children, in my view, are essentially a global pandemic. And I, 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 I despair sometimes uh, how, about ever really pushing the tide back. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I, um, I, hate, I hate not being optimistic. Hmm. Um, but I, I kind of agree with the idea that it, this is a... Um, this is a never-ending issue. Mm. I do think, though, that that um, when we do training, we need to give them tangible resources. In other words, we can't just tell them what to do. We have to help them create what they're going to do. As a matter of fact, I just spent the last two days um, moderating one of our trainings on a. It's a prevention training mm. on. Um, uh, preventing child sexual abuse. So just quickly, and, though, who, who would have been your audience then? We had law enforcement. We had um, prosecutors. We had people from Child Protective Services. We had um, non-government organizations represented. We had um, uh, victim advocates represented. I was, just setting, I was just setting the scene. That's terrific. So a multidisciplinary audience. Right. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, that's okay. And and one of the, the things that comes from this class is the collaborative work of what can we do? And we, we give them this tangible asset at the, you know, uh, uh, that they work through to help them build. So many people have gone through strategic planning and um, SWOT analysis at strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And, and we do a, a, a that type of, of training, I guess, so to speak, in our class. But what we give them is something that they're going to take back with them that's easy to use and makes it so that they can continue to build and expand and evaluate and um, update what they're doing to prevent child mm. abuse in their communities. Mm. No. Understood. Understood. It's got, they've got to be able to. And did you feel? Did you get the feeling at the end of it that they got the message? Oh, absolutely. I do think that because the the really great part of that is is that it's we're not spending two days telling them what they need to do. Mm. 
we're spending two days helping them figure out what they need to do and guiding them because every single um, discipline is going to need have different needs and different expectations and different abilities to to um, influence behaviors in their communities. And so what we want to do is we want to bring together all of them as a collaborative effort to um, uh, almost as a holistic effort to create a community action plan for their communities. Right. Well, you've been involved at a very senior level over your career with different things. But one thing I want to now go on to a little bit. I, I saw that you were um, a subject matter expert on various things, including the International Association of Chiefs of Police Child Sex Trafficking Training Project. Now, on a global policy level, um, I, I just wonder what your opinion is. So, so for example, when I worked, I, I did some work with the police in Sri Lanka, right? And effectively over there, there is no welfare program. So effectively, if you're out of work, you're out of work, there's no money. And you had families, for example, of, oh, I don't know, you know, a large family with, say, eight children. And the only income that they got sometimes was when they sold their youngest girl for sex. And, of course, you have, we have to interrupt that. We have to stop that. But when it stopped, the family were absolutely destitute because there's no welfare program. And I know that the same kind of philosophy applies when you came to things like, you know, um, puppy fields in Afghanistan and so forth, you know, when their income stops, the income stops. How did you begin to talk about that kind of thing at a government level or international level? I mean, am I right in, in that that had to be on the agenda, these kind of dilemmas? Well, the, yes, and of course the dilemma, the dilemmas uh, are, are um, oftentimes um, issues that we can't even think to be begin to think how to address um you know one of the one of the things is is that there's there's many countries in this world that don't even have um crimes on their books that involve you know yes. legislation on their books that involve yeah. crimes against children yeah yeah and and so we we just have to uh continue to look at this from a victim centered perspective of what is it that we're doing to these kids and the long-term effects to to the abuse of these children mm. it just doesn't stop when the abuse stops it doesn't go away when the abuse goes away these long-term effects will can can affect their health it can and it can affect their their livelihood um, it can affect their self-esteem uh, there are so many variables that come into it as, you know, as the um, adverse childhood experiences studies are all saying, the, these ACEs studies are just showing that what happens to a child um, doesn't always um, stop when no. the abuse stops. No, no. The effects are long-term. I appreciate it. Well, look, we've got about five or 10 minutes left, Joe, and I, I think that's a nice little segue into the next part of things I want to sort of get your thoughts on. Because at the moment, you are part of the Tennessee Child Abuse Prevention Coordinating Committee and the Board of Directors for uh, Davis House, isn't it? A child advocacy center uh, um, in Tennessee. And you, I know, are committed 
to listening to children. And the idea of, I mean, you've put it yourself in a note you've sent to me saying you understand normative behaviours and get to know youth. Do you want to expand on that just a bit? Sure. I think that what we sometimes do, especially in law enforcement, we don't know kids um, because we have these assumptions and these assumptions are based upon the contacts that we've had as a law enforcement officer with a, with a teenager or, or someone young. And in most cases, those contacts are not very positive. Um, breaking up a party, you're on a traffic stop, you're dealing with them with some kind of issue. Um, and so that becomes the perspective that, that you have of kids. And for luckily, luckily for me, I spent more than 10 years in the classrooms of schools teaching kids about drug um, awareness and, and violence prevention through a program called DARE. And, uh, and I, I think that that has influenced, influenced me so much on understanding youth that they really are um, learning and growing and they're not just little adults. Um, they are, they are children mm -hmm. and, and they're, they're going to make some mistakes, but at the same time, they want to do good. They want to do the right thing. So I think it's so important that we understand how to influence kids, how to change their behaviors, um, you know, knowing the right things to, to say to them about prevent, you know, when we're trying to prevent child abuse or where we're mm -hmm. trying to prevent crimes against children, we're trying to get them to not send naked pictures of themselves to somebody mm -hmm. else. Um, uh, and, and understand that, that if you train them on the idea that most kids do the right thing, instead of training them and talking to them about, you know, there's a whole bunch of you who are making mistakes out there. Um, what we're doing is, is, is lumping them into the bad side. And what we want to do is we want to lump them into the good side and we want to listen to what they have to say. No, I, I have this really cool um, uh, method of, uh, of finishing up a presentation on technology safety where I put up what I call thought bubbles. And they're, they're, they're poster size, um, uh, like a thought bubble, like you would see over a cartoon, a yeah. cartoon character. Hmm. And it would say things like, um, I protect myself online by, and, or it would say, I tell my younger siblings to, or when I see cyberbullying, I, or um, I stand for, mm -hmm. and then I give them post-it notes, and they write their own responses and post it on these, um, on these posters, to whatever that thought bubble is. Now the greatest part of that for me is is seeing how positive they are. And yes, kids will some kids will push the envelope, but they're getting called out by the group because the group says this is not who we are strong yeah and yeah. then guess what happens with all of those post-it notes when they leave yeah that's information that i get from them data you have a data it's, harvesting there joe <laughs> they call correct it. now you make sure that you you know you're not getting you know i'm, I'm not asking them to put their names on them no no, no i'm no, just no. asking them to put their thoughts on them 
I want to ask you one final thing before I get, I get asked you for your final message. And that is a, a kind of a continuing debate there is these days. On one hand, people say, look, we use schools far too much. The, you know, what people should, kids should be going to school to learn subjects, you know, they go to school, education, right? But we talk to them about cyberbullying, we talk to them about sex, we talk to them about drugs, we talk to them about guns, we talk to them about you know, relationships, we, talk to them, we get schools to do all these different things. We completely use schools as the, the only place that they actually should be taught about things and learning about things, and it totally clogs up their life. However, on the other side of things, we say, well, how about kids go to school sometimes more waking hours than their parents even see them. It is the place for them because they're there with their peers, and it's the perfect place to introduce these kind of preventative subjects. Where, where, where do you stand on that? Well, this is what I tell <laughs> educators. If you use technology in your classroom, you have a responsibility to teach of technology safety. Now, here's the thing that's most important is that I am not suggesting or recommending that they teach a class on technology safety. I'm recommending that they incorporate into their current class, no matter what the topic is, information about online protections. It could be simply as um, you're doing a research project, understanding information. Where does it come from? How do you verify it? Um, how, do you, how do you share that information that you got with other people appropriately? Those are really simple ways for educators to get their message across to protect their students. But if you're using this technology, you're putting them into the playground. But, and it is and it, education too. I mean, you know, you can't it deny is. it's not education. You know. And it's also, we should be teaching them um, how to um, behave with each other. Yeah, well, mm, absolutely. I, I think... Joe, there's a minute or two left. I'm, 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 this, this, this broadcast, you know, it's a lot for Europe, but it, it goes into a lot of places in the States and, and, and maybe into about 20 or 30 countries as well. And I hope that our audience includes lots of people who are in our world, you know, not just law enforcement, not just social work, but child protection, safeguarding. What, what kind of message would you like to give out to people um, from your long journey, your experience, um, you know, what, what, what kind of things would you like to, for people starting out today in these, in these professions? You know, I, I, I think I circle back to what I pretty much started with, and that is um, get to know other people who, who, um, who are doing uh, similar but different work so that it can enhance what work you do uh, and and listen to them on what they do so that you know ask them how would you handle this case uh, how would you handle this situation because how they would handle it in their discipline um, may teach you some things about their work yeah. very good message very good message well look to Laramie I mean I I know because I hardly touched upon some of the stuff that you've dipped your, your feet into over the years. And 
the influences you've come across and the influences you've had in other people. But perhaps we can talk again in the not too distant future. But I really appreciate you giving time today on the podcast. So thank you very much for being my guest. Thank you so much for inviting me. And, and to all of those who are listening, thank you for the gift of your time.